Let's exhort one another in faith in the spirit of triumphant and breakthrough stories. Turn to somebody to your left, right, forward, behind you and say, you got this. I, I, learned, that, I learned that phrase. Uh, my kids have graduated from high school now. They've gone off to college, but they both were runners in high school. They're competitive. My daughter started running cross country and track. And that's what all the kids would say to encourage one another. Like in the middle of the race, you know, the... the the athletes on the sidelines would say, you got this, you got this. I don't know, and back in my day, we used to say something less politically correct, like, kill him. But uh, <laughs> and I was like, it's like, uh, you got this, you got this. Like, you, you might think that you don't got this, but in fact, you do got this. Have, 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 you, ever, uh, have you ever done something that you didn't think you could pull off? Yeah? That experience? You got this. That's the idea behind the phrase. Uh, that's not your warm-up question. Here's your warm-up question. What's life like? Just, just a little one, a little question. What's life like? Life is like what? A box of chocolates. You know, I figured that would come up. I figured that would come up. But, but let's be a little, a little less gumpy. And uh, maybe, maybe you have some other answers. What's life like? Life is like what? What's the proper simile? What's the proper analogy? Life is unpredictable, like a box of chocolates. I think that's the point, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry? Life is like a race. You got this. Life is a roller coaster ah, with fun, terrifying all of the above. An ice cream cone. Life is like an ice cream. I'm afraid to ask Mike. <laughs> Why is life like an ice cream cone? You have to lick it one day at a time. You have to lick it one day at a time. There's a reason we don't let him preach the sermons. There's a reason. We don't, we don't go there. Yeah. Oh, the gospel according to Ice Cube. Life, li- life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. All right, okay, that, that's insightful. Bar- life is an adventure. Life is an adventure. Uh, are, these the, are these the similes and the analogies that, that you like? You don't want life to, to be that way? Yeah. I hear lots of different things, but life is like what... What church should be like, what church life should be like, you know. Uh, life is like um, um, uh, uh, a war zone, and church should be like a hospital, you know, I hear stuff like that. Uh, life is like school, you're always learning something. Life is like a family, it, you know, it's embracing, it's nurturing, it's all inclusive, it should be. Um, there's uh, the similes that we think are appropriate, and then there are the similes that we think uh, we like, you know. Uh, and I think this frame of reference that you have, your general overall perspective on life, does a lot to shape your attitude to life, right? Because if you think life should be like a race, um, then you approach life with an athletic mindset. You know, you got to... You've got, you got to push through some things, and you appreciate people that encourage you forward, that encourage you to actually be intense and to be hard-driving, because those things are appropriate to a race. 
If you think life is a party, well, then that's an entirely different mindset that you cultivate. A lot of, a lot of people do that. If you think life is too hard, then you go one way. If you think you need to be hard enough for life, then you go a different way. So, you know, it shapes your attitudes, and your attitudes ultimately shape uh, your uh, abilities. And I think about this a ton because life is never quite what I want it to be like. I don't know about you. Maybe I can get an amen or a chihu or something. Um, and, uh, and over the years, you know, I've learned, I've learned to sort of interact with people and to lead people uh, accordingly, basic illustration, also an athletic illustration. Back in the day, I used to really be in the martial arts. I was part of like martial arts dojos, this karate dojo. I was, uh, in my 20s, I was involved in this dojo. We kind of ran it as a nonprofit dojo being a, a gym for martial arts. And uh, whenever a new person would join or begin to join, uh, the, uh, I was in it long enough that I became one of the seniors, right? one of the senior black belts. Whenever a new person would join, uh, we would assign one of the black belts uh, you know, to kind of spar with them and then punch them. We'd, we'd slap them in the face or punch them in the gut. Not hard. It's just a dose of reality. Uh, and what this was for us was a weed-out process. Like, I never hurt anyone the entire time that I was there. This is what happens, though. If you punch somebody in the face, they get punched in the face for the first time. You can tell everything you need to know about how it's going to go for them by how they react to that moment. Because, like, you're not hurt, but you might be so shocked and offended that you cannot even finish the workout. Right? So there's two things. There's like the difficulty that happens to you, and then it's your reaction to the difficulty. And if people joined a karate dojo and were offended by getting punched, they probably should pick a different sport. You know? And that was our mentality. And we saw lots of people join, get one punch to the gut, and be like, oh, why did you do that? It's karate. Frame of reference, frame of reference, right? And sometimes in life, what happens is that we're going through life and we get punched in the gut, metaphorically speaking, and we're like, "Ah, how could that happen? God, how could you let that happen? And I always imagine God saying, what did you think this was? What did you think this, I mean, did you really think life was a cruise down a gently flowing river? Did you really think that's where purpose and power comes from in life? Now, I was supposed to be, um, you know, your, your caretaker and host for all of this. You get the idea, anyway. Uh, my early life was a little bit chaotic. Uh, I've told lots of stories about my early life, and I was um, pushed around a lot in my early life that way. I had different people at different times and, and different extreme and, and, and scary, traumatizing situations uh, uh, for a while. And um, I remember being introduced to sports as a kid. Um, and, um, and coaches challenging me to kind of overcome my limits and pain. And, you know, those of you who have been in athletic pursuits, that's kind of the point, right? There's this frontier where you need to decide whether you can endure and overcome or not. And the athletic mentality is to endure 
and overcome. Endurance, it comes from the word dure, which just means hard. It means to make yourself hard in hard times, to overcome the hard things. Um, and I immediately loved it. The more I hurt during a workout, the better I felt. Here's why. It's because life was extremely painful for me when I was a kid. And I embraced sports as a spiritual discipline. Sports helped me to find it. You know what it is? Help me find the thing that focused me, intensified me, and encouraged me to be an overcomer, right? It. Um, I have uh, stolen a phrase from the, the nickname of uh, former Seattle Seahawks running back Marshawn Lynch. It I call beast mode. Any football fans today? It's the Super Bowl. No Seahawks fans here, evidently. <laughs> Beast mode, when like, you know, you, everything is fine, but sometimes you just got to go beast mode, right? Sometimes you have to become a monster. And I embraced that as a spiritual discipline. And then when I was in junior high school, high school, I had this great Christian coach. Uh, he used to give sermons every Friday morning at the Letterman's meeting, like the meeting for all the athletes. And, and, and you would just use all of these sports analogies. And I just loved it. I didn't get a lot of church in my life because my family wasn't church going. But, you know... Sports kind of became my church, my temple, my fellowship. I met a lot of uh, good Christians around me and, and this one really great uh, Christian coach that helped me go beast mode as a spiritual discipline. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Like, we need, we need that thing. We need it. Uh, I am sort of kicking off a new sermon series. I'm going to preach uh, this is the story of, of the Exodus, which I haven't done in six or seven, eight years or something which is, you know, like the most famous story of the Old Testament, probably, like the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt. I mean, they made a Disney cartoon out of it, so it's pretty popular. Um, and really what it is, it's a story of how to take a slave and turn him or her into a free person of purpose. That's really what the story of Exodus is about, uh, how to go from slavery to promise, from slave mindset to purpose-free mindset, and it turns out that it's relatively easy to take people out of slavery. It's relatively hard to take slavery out of people, and, and, this, and it's just a fascinating story, an iconic story uh, in that way, but I was thinking about, well, how do you kick it off? What's the best way to uh, kick off a story about Exodus? So I'm going to preach today from a passage in Hebrews. It'll make sense in a little while. Because here's what I was thinking, as I was reflecting on the arc of the story, and I know that many of you know the arc of the story, the exodus coming into the promised land and parting the Red Sea and all that stuff. As I was reflecting on the entire arc of it, I realized that the generation that God took out of slavery, this is the tragedy of the story, the generation of people that God freed from Egypt didn't make it into the promised land. There was just a handful of exceptions, uh, Joshua and Caleb and their families. Because at the last moment, just as they were entering, crossing the Jordan and going into the promised land, they couldn't go beast mode. Some of you know the story. Because they sent some spies into the land, the promised land, and it turned out that there were some intimidating giants in the land, some, some really strong soldiers, and they were like, 
I don't know if we want to push through this. And their promise fell apart. Their promise fell apart. They could follow God. They learned to serve God. They learned to be taken care of by God. But they couldn't go beast mode. Which takes a lot of faith. You know, it takes, it's a risk. Some intensity uh, behind the risk. And so I just wanted to talk today about beast mode. This is my beast mode sermon. I've called it something like the game of life because beast mode would look bad on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I've recently been through a rough, a rough patch uh, in life. And, and, and like I say, such rough patches have two challenges. It's the difficulties in them and then it's my reaction to the difficulties. Whether I, I get shock, I get shy and retiring and then go to a dark corner and lick my wounds. And you need some days like that, don't you? Or I go beast mode and become harder, right? A little bit more intense, a little bit angrier, but in a good way, right? Kind of a focused warrior, athletic sort of way. And I have often found that people aren't destroyed by the difficulties they face. They're destroyed by their reaction to their difficulties. And people are often willing to be healed from their traumas and difficulties and challenges, but they're not willing to grow stronger. Right? So they're good, they're good patients, but they're not good athletes. Right? Or they go to the hospital, but they won't go to the gym. Anyway, you get the analogy, right? What I'm saying. And so I want uh, to talk about athletic mindset today, the athletic mindset of spiritual life today, um, not just because I'm wired that way, you know, I still love it, I still use it in my life, uh, when I'm going through a really desperate time, really desperate week, it's common for me to go run over a mountain and just utterly exhaust myself, it's, I find that really helpful, because it helps me find it. Yeah, but not just because of that. Uh, I want to talk about that athletic mindset today um, because it will heal you, right? It will get you past uh, the things that perhaps have beaten you down uh, in the last uh, several years. God uses this. It's an important part of our development, right? He wants us to be able to to cross mountains and deserts and go beast modes when we need to. One of the most curious um, uh, passages from the stories of Israel entering the promised land and contending against the challenges that were there and uh, the enemy tribes that were there comes from uh, Judges uh, chapter 3. I'm sort of a collector of really obscure Bible verses, and this is obscure. Uh, but this is the story of Israel's entering the promised land, and eventually, it's taken them a couple generations to get the hang of it, but eventually they've kicked butt. They've sort of driven out uh, the enemy tribes that were there, um, which I know sounds terribly unjust and politically incorrect uh, to wage warfare, but these were really nasty, nasty, nasty tribes who had turned their backs on God, and eventually God just sort of had to judge them as a people. These were people that kind of pioneered uh, all sorts of depravity and human sacrifice and baby sacrifice and stuff like that. And God was like, this just has to be removed. That's kind of part of that story. But they've done a pretty good job, at least 
kind of expanding and, and clearing the land and taking hold of it. But Judges chapter 3 says, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. And then he lists the, the tribes, the five rulers of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, Hivites. Um, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given them through their forefathers Moses. So God was like, hey, the Israelites have done such a great job that their kids might not have to fight any wars. I'm going to do something to make sure that they always have to fight wars. And that's shocking, isn't it? It's shocking to think that the God of the universe would arrange things in such a way that people would have to learn how to fight, that they would have to learn violence. But life always requires a little violence of some sort. Now eventually, through hundreds of generations, the people of God grow up, they, they mature, they learn wiser, until finally in the New Testament, Paul says, well, it's not, our, it's not like our battle is against flesh and blood. Like, we're not so juvenile that we're fighting people anymore. We're fighting evil spirits, powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. Life is still a battle, but you still need the capability to go violent when necessary. If you don't have that capability, your life will suck. Somebody will have to take care of you forever. If you do get that capability... Uh, then you'll be able to, uh, to push through. And, and then throughout the New Testament, there are all sorts of encouragements along these lines. And I'll read what I think is a fairly famous passage from Hebrews 12. And here's the first thing I want you to understand about Hebrews 12. Um, it follows Hebrews 11. Go ahead and write that down. I don't always go in depth in my word studies, but I just wanted to really give you a little theology today. So you can write that down. Hebrews 11 is famous. It's called the Hall of Faith. And the author of Hebrews, we don't actually know who it is by tradition, Paul, but probably not, actually. Um, just a, a, a Christian leader of the day writing to Jewish Christians. And, and uh, some people say it's Priscilla, which would be interesting because then it would be a book of the Bible written by a woman, which is kind of cool. But um, It's called the Hall of Faith because the author is just running through all of these great lives in history, all of these heroes of previous generations uh, of faith. And, you know, he's talking about you know, Abraham and the patriarchs, Moses, uh, Jacob, Joseph. And what more shall I say, the author picks up uh, halfway through uh, the chapter. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained the promise. These are the people that went beast mode. Uh, and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. So, so that's like a, a pep talk a coach would give before a game. Women received back their dead to life, raised to life again. And then there's a switch. Others were tortured. <laughs> uh, 
and refused to be released so that they might gain better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned to death. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. I'm starting to feel a little unmotivated about this game. Uh, They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute. They were humiliated by poverty, persecuted and mistreated. Oh, the world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and lived in caves and holes in the ground. Who's signing up? Who's, well, who wants in? Who wants in? So it's important that, you know, he sort of proclaims beast mode and then kind of goes to, you know, the challenge to that. And yet they were all commended for their faith, even though they did not receive what was promised. And then finally picking it up in chapter 12. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and these are the people he's talking about, these heroes, these people who, who went beast mode and occasionally got their butts kicked. Since those people are in the crowd cheering us on, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and it would have been such a humiliating way to die, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You got this. You got this. The great ones always push through. You got this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've got more to give. You've still got more to give. Your models are people who really suffered, who endured, and eventually overcame, whether in this world or the next. When you think of high performance, what do you think of? I say that term, high performance, a high performance life, what do you think of? Success, hard work, work. sacrifice, that's interesting, I mean, is that really true? When I say, perform high, you think of sacrifice, because if you do, then I think you kind of, you kind of got it right, you know, and that's kind of what, what the passage is about. Uh, and, and I would call that an athletic mindset. You could call it a warrior mindset. But here the author likens life to running a race. Uh, uh, even though the author was writing to Jewish Christians, which is why we call it Hebrews, um, he was writing into a very athletic culture because at this time uh, this area of the world was utterly dominated by the Greeks. And the Greek culture, the Romans had sort of taken it over and they borrowed from the Greeks. And the Roman culture was quite similar to the Greek culture. It was super athletic. It's a little bit like American culture, to be honest. Uh, you might uh, wonder at my genius of picking this passage on Super Bowl Sunday. I'm just going to give you eight seconds to appreciate how culturally sensitive and brilliant I am. One, two, three. Uh, we won't, you know, say the gods on one side or the other, but your pastor was born in the Bay Area. And, uh, um, but what, he's, what the author is saying here is that life is, is, is like 
an athletic event and uh, he likens it to a race, which in those days would have happened in something called a stadium. That's actually a Greek word. Uh, the races uh, would have been held on tracks that were in the neighborhood of uh, 200 meters. Um, and then they had various different sorts of races. Sometimes people would run in full armor. Sometimes they would run nude, you know, the Greeks. Um, um, and people would, would just go crazy. They would sort of sit on this raised berm and, and watch someone. Sometimes the races would be longer and they would go around and around. They would try shout encouragement at the athletes. This is sort of the image that the author is encouraging uh, the people to have in mind. And it would have been pure, it would have been intense, it would have been, uh, you know, highly uh, emotional. Uh, and it's part athletes, part competition, and part crowd, and part cheering. Um, if a crowd is cheering you on, you can do more than you can normally. That's the idea. When I was in high school, I played football, and uh, my high school was in a town of 5,000 people. To have a high school, we had to put together three little towns, you know, just kind of make it up. Uh, and in our stadium, every Friday night, we'd have over 8,000 people. Like, people would come down from the mountains, like all these cabin people and stuff, you know. And, and you felt, if, if you were on the field, you felt like, wow, you know, like, I'm, all these people are really into everything I do, which either intimidates you or inspires you. Uh, toward great things. Um, when I ask people what it takes to be an athlete, they say, what? Hard work, sacrifice, lots of preparation. But that's not what the passage is about. The passage says the game is upon you. The moment for preparation is gone. Right? Life is now. Right? You can't go back to the gym and get stronger. You have to find the ability to be stronger at this moment. Right? And so there might be reason to doubt your preparation. Suck it up. Because the crowd is cheering for you, and the gun went off, and you're running. It's immediate. It's urgent. That's the spirit of the passage as it is written to us. We are encouraged to be extraordinarily focused. We're encouraged to kind of transcend what we have prepared to do. You're not prepared. You're not ready. Maybe you don't have any reason to think that you could pull it off, that you could keep running, that you could overcome the next hurdle or pass the next athlete, but you have to. So there it is. You have to. What are you going to do? You're just going to do it, right? You're just going to do it. You're going to try, and not like try and not do, but like really, really go for it. You know, 110% as every mathematically challenged coach yells. Uh, it's now. It's on. Turn to somebody next to you and say, oh, it's on. So if you're having an oh-no moment in life, suck it up. You know, that's kind of what the passage says. It's time to go beast mode, people. You know, suck it up. It's time to pull off a miracle. We're in the business of doing miracles, are we not? Fix your eyes on Jesus for Pete's sake. What stopped him, right? He could 
overcome anything. He could heal anything. He found you know, money in fish's mouths. He fed crowds of people with a little boy's lunch. He overcame death himself. Right? When he was on the eve of his own death, of going to the cross, he prayed so hard in Gethsemane, he bled from his forehead, people. This is what's possible for a person. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that started this anyway. And he will complete, that's what perfect means in this passage, he will complete your faith. Uh, you've got to go for it. You can't hold back, and you can't second guess, and you can't doubt. And here's another thing you have to do. You have to set aside your hindrances that entangle you. You know what sucks? It sucks to run a marathon while wearing a backpack, doesn't it? Some of you are like, one, never ran a marathon. Uh, Two, would never do it with a backpack, except one of those maybe water camels. Uh, you know, and then I need my headphones and, uh, you know, the heart monitor and the fancy shoes. And it's like, you know, just you're going to have to lay some things aside if you're going to run fast, if you're going to find uh, your way to victory. So how much do you actually need in life? You know, how much do you need? What's hindering you from being that pure, intense athlete? If you're running over a mountain, like what do you actually want to carry? How much of your past do you want to carry? Right? How, how many extraneous hopes and dreams do you want to carry? Let's be ruthless about this. You know, because athletes are ruthless. And every sin that so easily entangles you. You know, the thing, when it's on, and you're an athlete, you're a soldier, it's in the midst, it's time to endure, it's time to fight, it's time to compete, it's time to overcome, there's always a temptation to reach out for comfort in that moment. And that's how we get into sin, is it not? You know, reaching out for comfort. It's like, this is a little too hard. I deserve a little nibble of this. You know? Because, hey, life is like a box of chocolates. You know? To which the coach responds, life is like a box of chocolates that somebody's trying to stuff down your throat to kill you. Church is fun. (laughs) That's kind of what the passage says. So don't be nibbling chocolates. What kind of an idiot are you? Does that help you breathe? Really, is that what you need right now? You need a little comfort to get you through the day. No, you need to get harder. You need to become like flint. You need that look in your eye. You need to be able to do it by yourself by yourself, with thousands of people looking upon you and judging your performance. That's what you need. You need to be able to go beast mode. Otherwise, you'll never cross the river and get into promise. That's what the passage uh, is, is saying. You need to essentialize and prioritize people. What is life like? Well, it is an incredibly difficult race. How much can you afford to carry with you? How many sidelines can you have? You know? You have not yet struggled uh, to the point of shedding blood. You know? Before you shed blood, you typically reach out for comfort. Before you shed blood, you typically you slow down, don't you? You take a break, you go to an aid station because that's what they're there for, right? 
You run marathon these days, they have aid stations with live bands. Oh, come on! <laughs> Seriously! Sign up for a marathon. It will be a party. That is a conflicting message. And it does not encourage anyone to go beast mode. But it does probably get more people to run the race and you make more money and stuff. Um, and I'm afraid that that's often how we approach you know, uh, athletics. Anyway, you get, you get the idea. You need the ability to go beast mode. You need the ability to find it in life. You're not going to need it all the time. But you're going to need it. And you're probably going to need it a lot of the time. And I'm just here to tell you, you're probably going to need it a lot of the time. You're going to have to be a rare, unreasonable creature. You have to be obsessive and intense about life performance, about the things of God and purpose and promise and love and, 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 and supernatural power that really make up the crux of your existence. You're going to have to be obsessive about that. And if you can do that, then the rest of life will be enough for you. If you can't do that, then the rest of life will never be enough for you. If you can go beast mode, then the comforts that you have in life will be enough for you. If you can't go beast mode, then you'll never get enough comfort in life. You'll crave it endlessly. You will chase it endlessly, and it will lead you into ever-increasing hindrances and entanglements. You'll never be full. You'll just get less and less fit. You know, that's how it works. So look, I hope you don't have to go through life like an athlete in a steeplechase. Uh, I hope all of your life uh, is not like that. I hope that you don't have to go through all of life like a warrior in battle. But I know that if you can, when necessary, uh, then you can have an extraordinary life and you can be that rarest of all creatures on earth, an actual free individual which is what the story of Exodus is trying to create in the world. Let me take you out of slave mindset and let me make you free, powerful, and purposeful. And the whole way, the Israelites did nothing but complain. The whole way, they said it was too hard, except for a few who got into promised land and then raised a generation who could pull it off. I would love to raise a generation that could pull it off. And for my entire ministry life, one of the things that I've been thinking hardest about is how to impart this spiritual athleticism to people. I'm telling you, there's nothing less fashionable. There's nothing less fashionable in the world. My life verse, uh, you've maybe heard me quote it before, Matthew um, 11, 12. From the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been advancing by force. And it takes forceful people to get a grip on it. You know, I've been trying to impart this mindset of obsessive intensity, you know, that sort of spiritual discipline of finding the point of pain and exhaustion, finding it. Because I know that if I can get people to find it, that it's going to be okay. You know? But people don't want 
it. People want the band at the aid station. <laughs> I'm not insulting the band, by the way. We have a good band. Uh, anyway, I've been trying to figure it out, and, and I think you know, the story of Exodus is a good one, but, but there are so many great passages. So many times Paul uses analogies of athletic events or battles in order to get this across to, to people. We all need a bit of the athlete in us, the, the, the person who can walk through injury and opposition. Like, it's just part of the game, man. It's just part of the game. What did you expect? You signed up at a dojo for Pete's sake. What did you expect life would be like? You can overcome the difficulty, provided you can overcome your offense that there's a difficulty. You got this, people. You totally do. There is no temptation that beset you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful and will provide a way out. But it might take you to the stratosphere of athletic effort. It might force you to do something that no human being has ever accomplished before. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that just be the triumph of your life? If you pulled it off, and if you pulled it off without any help, as if you were performing in an arena, that would be fantastic, would it not? I don't know if you can do it. You think you can do it? I'm watching. I'm characterizing, obviously. What's the definition of athletic attitude? I was thinking about that a lot this week. Like, what defines an athlete? I, so many ways to characterize it, and I've tried to characterize it so many ways this morning, but I would say that the athlete is the person dedicated to finding the way to be stronger. You're dedicated to finding the way to be stronger. You're not necessarily dedicated to escaping the difficulties of life. In fact, you might go hunting for difficulties in life if you have that athletic spirit. Because difficulties help make you stronger. It's the game, it's the competition, it's the crush of opposition that triggers in you that mystical something, brings out of you strength that you never even knew you had. Have you ever accomplished something that you didn't think you could pull off? You probably did it under great pressure. You probably did it in opposition. You had to reach God knows where and transcend the person that you thought you, you were. And if you love that, you go hunting for mountains to run over sometimes. And if you got it, it's really helpful. Sometimes you don't have to go hunting. Sometimes God drops a mountain on your head. And I'm just here to say, that's no different. Sometimes he leaves enemy tribesmen in the land to teach you the art of warfare. Sometimes he goes out of his way to make life hard. I've discovered in life that God pretty much always goes out of his way to make life hard, to sort of, you know, crush the supports that I think I have. And, you know, and it's helped make me a, a rare sort of person. I don't know if it's made me a particularly good sort of person. But dang, it teaches you to, to be strong. Athletes find a way to be stronger, not safer, not more comfortable, not even happier, just stronger. 
because the happiness comes when you get the prize. That's what athlete means, by the way. Athlete means one who chases the prize. From the Greek word, athlon. So I would just like to say to you this morning, you got this. I think you can do it. You're not as soft or as weak as you think you are, and the pain does not stop you. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't. No. Yeah. Let's cross the river. Uh, so Father God, I pray as always that you would com- perfect your agenda for every person here. I pray that you change us all at least uh, a little bit before we go. And I pray uh, just as a, a parting gift that you would fix in our eyes Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our model for healthy competition in this unruly world. Uh, show us the athlete that is Christ. The one who was uh, overcome, hard-pressed, overwhelmed, but who responded with blood went to a place that no one thought it was even possible to go.